Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. I'm James Conlon, welcoming you to join me as we embark on a journey that has tremendous significance for me and for the Los Angeles Opera. This podcast is part of a four-part presentation that accompanies Los Angeles Opera's rebroadcast of Richard Wagner's The Ring of the Nibelungen. Instead of the more conventional podcasts, we feature four recordings of live pre-performance talks as I gave them in 2010. They have all of the virtues and vices of live performance, just as any live opera itself would have. Interruptions, technical issues with musical excerpts, even the occasional mistake. Although there were sporadic performances of Ring operas performed by visiting companies, the 2009-2010 Ring was the first ever produced in Los Angeles. I hope the excitement which we all felt, public and performers alike, will bear up well under the microscope of the microphone and will be an enjoyable adjunct to your journey through this monumental work. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming. You've made it to the end of the ring. I'm delighted. Now, you know what I do here. I'm going to walk you through Goethe Demerung. How many of you have seen all three operas now? Good. Some of you have missed them. I hope so. Anybody here for the first time? Excellent. Okay. I'm glad to see you. I hope to make a convert of you, and then we'll see you Tuesday night for the Rheingold. We've made a simile that this is like a four-part work, probably the greatest, certainly the longest piece of music in uh, not good at Demerung, I mean the whole thing. This is probably the greatest accomplishment of any single composer in the Western tradition of classical music. There's certainly no bigger piece. There's certainly no piece that is conceived on the level of this. It's an extraordinary 15 or 16 hours of music, if you were to play it nonstop, written over a period of 20 years. You know, it is usually said Tristan and Isolde changed it all. I would like on another occasion to argue that and look at the ring and look at Tristan and I say that they both revolutionized music. And that's another story for another day. Good to Demerung, what does it mean? It means the twilight of the gods. That's the traditional classical translation. Goethe is the plural of Gott, which is gods, and Demerung is both the dawn and the dusk. In other words, it's the color of the sky when the sun is coming up and when it's going down. Don't forget that, because even though classically, and by intention of Wagner, this is about dusk, there's going to be one tiny element about dawn, and I will get to that. You will remember that Wotan fathered many children, grandchildren, and some of them are still left in this opera. In fact, quite a few. We will not see Wotan any longer. He has gone to Valhall, his house, his castle, to await the end. The Germans like to refer to this piece as incorporating a feeling which is shortly before midnight. Kurz vor Mitternacht is the term. What does that mean? It's the sense of the apocalyptic, that the end is nigh. We all know this. There's apocalyptic literature in every culture. We certainly know it from the Christian Judaic tradition of scriptures. So what is it? It's the feeling that the end is coming. And one of the magic things that I think will pull you, and I take this out of my own personal experience, pull you through this music drama is the sense that is a magnet. And that magnet keeps you attached to your seats all the way to the end with a feeling, at least the feeling I get, of both dread of the end and desire for the end. 
I first experienced this uh, in 1973 in London, where I stood through a performance of Goethe Demeron conducted by the slowest of the great Wagnerian conductors, Sir Reginald Goodall, British conductor. It was sung in English at the Coliseum in London, and it was a great experience. I experienced that combination of dread and foreboding together with the desire that that actual culminating moment come. Maybe because I was standing, but I really wanted the end to come, and I, I make a joke out of it, but it is actually very serious, and you will feel it at the very beginning of this opera. Now, you'll remember that two operas start with expressions of nature. Rheingold started at the origin of being, which was represented by the Rhine River. Valkyrie started with a storm. You'll remember the soft, quiet ending that was uh, descriptive of the forest where Mima had his home, but we see the brooding of Mima. This time, there is no question that something is announced that is related to the end of the cosmic drama. Remember, we've gone from cosmic stories in Rheingold to love stories, human stories in Valkyrie. Gradually, the human has pushed out the cosmic, and by Goethe Demerung, all of the characters, almost all of the characters, are humans, because Brynhilde, who was a god, has become human through her punishment by having to sleep on the rock. She's been awakened to her new life as a human being by Siegfried. This is not dissimilar to many myths and religions, including Christ, who becomes human in order to save the world. Brynhilde, in her way, is going to redeem the world. We'll see how and if later, but she is now fully human. You will hear from the very beginning something that's going to arrest your attention. You've heard this before. These are two chords. You heard them when Brunhilde awakened in the third act of Siegfried, and she sees the light, and she says, Heil dir Sonne, heil dir Licht. Greetings, greetings to you, son, greetings to you, light. Why, she opened her eyes. Her eyes have been closed for 20 years. Now, the same two chords, but they already have a very different feeling to them. You're going to hear them enunciated three times. The feeling, and it's even visual for those of us who have to read the score, instead of being C major, which is the key of light, this one is E flat minor, has all those flats. You see a lot of flats. has a darker feeling to it. Now this time, it is combined, you can hear a rising figure underneath, which is similar to the Rhine River. It is similar to Erda, you will remember her. She is Mother Earth. And therefore, we know that we are in the realm again of, of basic and fundamental questions about existence. Remember in Wagner, everything, or in The Ring, everything starts from nature and everything returns to nature. Now, Wagner loves the symbolic meaning of three. We had three Rhine, Rhine maidens. We have three Norns. We're about to meet them. I'll explain in a second. We have three enunciations of this chord. And here it is the third time. And instead of resolving in the same way, it reintroduces a very important motive. Listen carefully, here it is. It's two chords with a single passing note. You remember that? When Brynhilde came to invite Siegmund to Valhalla. Now it's followed by dark and dank enunciation, future the discussion of the ash tree, more of that. What do we know? Okay, so you've got the picture. Within a minute, you know that we are dealing now with the cosmic drama again. And who are we going to meet? Well, here are our characters tonight. Brunhilde, daughter of Wotan, 
Valtrauda, one of the Valkyries whom we haven't seen since the third act of Valkyrie, tell Brunhilde the story of what's happened to the gods, what's happening in Valhalla, what is going on, daughter of Wotan and Erda, both of them. And there are three more daughters of Wotan and Erda, not Valkyries, but Norns. You're going to meet them immediately. They are the first scene, and then they will disappear into the earth. Who are they? They spin fate. You remember the Greek myths, the spinning of fate, of Every individual, every mortal had a fate. There was a spinning wheel. When it was cut, that life was over. Well, this is similar. There's a rope, and what they are going to see is the rope is going to snap in such a way that it is clear to them that there is no future. In other words, there's nothing to do. Their function is complete because their job was to see the future, sometimes to participate in the dispensing of people's fates and mortality. Now there is no future. So when this happens, they will return to the earth. So you've got children of Wotan, Brunhilde, three Norns, Valtrauda. Okay, remember that. Three Norns like the three Ryan Maidens. The three Ryan Maidens will come back. You haven't seen them since Ryan Gold. They will come back in the last act. They haven't changed a bit. Okay. <laughs> They don't change because they are functions of nature. You know, they swim around naked in the water. Their job was simple to guard, adore, and admire gold in its proper place in the Rhine. They have been out of work for 40 years, but magically their bodies are intact. They look great, just the way they did 40 years ago because they don't age. But they have been, they like your little dog, I've got two little dogs, when you're out of the house, all they do is sit there, I know, and wait for you, and they look so sad, and they wait. Well, they are a little bit similar. They still are frothy, they still flirt, they still do all those things, but the fact is they have been deprived of their function. They were like the Vestal Virgins. They were there to look at the light in the temple. The gold is gone, it has been robbed from them, and they still want it, and you will see they will still try to get it. And the good news for them is they will get it in the end. So you know those characters. Bear them in mind. What's going to happen in the first scene, those of you who have missed any of the earlier operas, I've always told you, don't worry, because the story gets retold yet again, and it's going to be told by the Norns. Okay, They're going to recount a lot of things from the beginning. Wagner loved narrative, and he has a lot of it. And why? Because, I'll let that play softly in the background while I explain this to you. Do you know that the story and libretto of The Ring was written backwards? He wrote what he called the death of Siegfried, Siegfried's told. And then he realized he had to explain who Siegfried was and how he came to be and how he got there. So he tells you about Siegfried's childhood, and he called it der junge Siegfried, the young Siegfried. And then he realized, well, we don't know about his parents or why anybody's looking for the gold and who's Fafner. So he wrote Valkyrie and to explain Fafner, he went all the way back to Rheingold. So that means that the conception actually grew going backwards. So he actually goes back to the beginning of the story. He goes back to the genesis, literally and figuratively. The story of what went on in Rheingold is like the Garden of Eden because somebody committed a serious sin, a fundamental sin, an original sin. Albrecht stole the goal, and that got the whole, that got the universe out of shape, and it made this whole story take place. So he wrote it backwards, and so consequently, he was always telling the story about what happened before. Wagner was loath to cut it, and cut it he did not. So every time you, do, you get a later opera, you get a lot of the story again, but with one important difference. Characters always explain their story from their point of view, how they understand the story. Sometimes it's ingenuous, sometimes it's self-interested. So if you've seen all the narratives and you've noticed that some details are different, 
That's important because it's like the Rashomon experience. You're seeing reality from different perspectives. So that's what they are doing. They're going to retell us the story how Wotan lost his eye. Wagner has Alberich renounce love and renounce something in order to gain power. Wotan committed a crime. He cut at a tree, the world ash tree, and he made his spear out of it. That's important, but he also abused nature. And that eventually, that ash tree withers and dies, and therefore uh, it will be burned at the end of this work, and that will be the great immolation. There are several other characters. You know almost all of them from one way or the other, but you're going to meet some new ones, and I will get to them in a short time. Here are the, here are the Norns. When they get to Siegfried's fate, it all stops, and that's where the electricity goes off. No information, the rope snaps. Esris, it has ripped. Each one of the Norns says the same thing. Esris, it has snapped. The motive in the tr trombone is the curse. And now the most important motive we're going to hear in the opera. This is the Twilight of the Gods. You hear that descending scale in the woodwind instruments. That is the Goethe-Demerung motive. Here's the, here's the curse again. The Goethe-Demerung motive was first heard in Rheingold. It is, came from Erda's mouth, or through the orchestra, and it was the inversion of Erda. Erda is Mother Earth. She is the center of creation and, this, and, and the growing of nature. The twilight of the gods is the inversion. It will go down. So whereas nature themes and Erda goes up, the twilight, the end, is coming down. Goethe Demerung is the opera where the orchestra is unleashed. The orchestra has been fundamental for the entire ring. Wagner, from the beginning of his compositional days, at least his mature days, the orchestra has taken on a role that was never taken on in the history of music before. You remember that he stopped writing Siegfried for 10 years, and we came back to the third act of Siegfried, and that already the orchestra was broader. Now in Goethe Demerung, he unleashes it. It is bigger. It is more complex. There is more counterpoint within the orchestra. And he will, in a fantastic last scene, which is called the final scene, the immolation of Brunhilde, he will bring back many motives in a way that has that served as a model later for Strauss, for Schoenberg, for Zimlinski, for Schraker, the idea of bringing it all in together to unify it. Now, the orchestra is so liberated that there are major excerpts for orchestra alone. The first is the Rhine journey in the first act. You will know it from concert stages. The second is the funeral march in the third act for Siegfried, which in essence is after the Eroica, the, the, the funeral march of the Eroica Symphony of Beethoven, the greatest funeral march in Western, probably in Western civilization, also in C minor, clearly modeled on Beethoven. And in this way, he expresses the death of the hero, but as we will see, it is disproportionate to the very meager accomplishments of Siegfried. Remember I told you they should have stayed up on the rock together and been happily ever after. He comes down to society and he unfortunately is completely unprepared. The next thing that will happen is they will go back into the earth, the Norns. We're done now with the cosmos. We're back to humanity. We're going to see the first of two sunrises and we're going to meet several new themes. Here's the first one, very quietly at first. This is Siegfried the hero, or I should say Heroism. You'll hear m many iterations of that. And here, 
this sinuous, sensual, round theme is Brunhilde. Just remember that all titles are relative. They were not created by Wagner for the most part. They were created afterwards. They, can all, they are all subject to interpretation. They can be nouns or verbs or gerunds or anything you like. Anything I tell you today is only a generalized way of trying to express the meaning of a motive. Now, these two motives will play against each other in this marvelous duet, which one could call the morning after. They're coming down from the mountain, both smiling from ear to ear. Now, was it one night or was it five months? Doesn't matter. The important thing is there they discovered their full humanity and their full mature sexuality because they were both kids, basically. And now they're full. There's Brunhilde. And they're coming down the mountain accompanied by a very gradual sunrise is, of course, the sunrise of the new humanity in Wagner's view, or at least at the beginning, this was, we don't need the gods anymore, we are humans. The humans will, this is the, this is the leftovers of the humanism of the, of the late 18th century, the idea that we can do it ourselves. And you see, with this great belief, the sun rises to this magnificent expression and its climax right here. Now you'll hear Siegfried's intone now, the theme, in its full majesty. This goes way beyond the individual Siegfried. He hasn't done anything. It's about the heroic possibility of the human being. Okay, remember that motive. Here it is again, just to keep it and get it implanted in your mind. Basically, Brunhilde, there's your Valkyrie theme from Brunhilde. You remember that? So Brunhilde is going to send her man out to work. Okay, dear, it's time for you to go out and do heroic things. You know, I don't know, break, kill somebody, chop down a tree, I don't know, do help humanity, out you go. So she sends him out. He said, and I'm going to leave you a sign of my fidelity. Here, take this ring. What do we know about the ring? Symbol of power and it brings with it its curse. So he shouldn't have done that, and it's gonna make a lot of trouble later, but out they go. And you will get yet another in the series of what you could call love duets. You've got the first big one in the first act of Valkyrie. You've got another splendid one at the end of Siegfried. This one's a little shorter because it's the morning after, but you will get the same type of sense of complete joy and jubilation in love. And remember that Wagner, in the end, it's all about love. Love is pitted against power. Power is bad. Love is good. The quest of power will ruin the world. The acquisition, if you could call it that, of love, the, the fulfilling, the experience of love is the highest possible human experience. And you will hear the two of them here, Brynhilde and Siegfried, climbing the heights of that love, just as did Tristan and Isolde, with the difference that they have been able to consummate their love, and they are able to live afterwards, whereas Tristan and Isolde were interrupted at the climactic moments. And then, of course, their, their, their tragedy unfolds. Listen to this. This is Birgit Nielsen. This is my youth. I heard her as a teenager, and you never get over it. Here she goes, the high seat. There it is. Siegfried, there's his motive.
He's off for his Rhine journey, which you know some of you from the concert hall. You hear it? There he is, Siegfried. And here's his horn call, and there's, here's Happy. It's a joy ride. He's out there like, paddling his way down the Rhine. Happy, jolly, unconcerned with anything. Okay, development of the Siegfried horn motive. He passes Loga. Remember Loga? Fire. It's going to end up in the Rhine. Here it is. Remember the Rhine River? From the beginning of Rheingold. And now it's big waves and plunging. And it's all great fun for Siegfried because he's a hero. That's the end of the prologue. One of the great moments you come to in you're conducting this piece, you've been up there for 45 minutes or so, and then you turn the page and it says, Act One. <laughs> so now that was all a prologue, and now it's Act One. And what happens in Act One is that we are in society, and we're going to meet more characters whom we do not know. Three of them are new in Goethe Demerung, and they are related to each other. They are coming from an important family called the Giebichung. They are young. There is a man, Gunther, and there is a woman, Gutruna. What does Gunther need? He needs a wife so that they can continue the line and to continue the power of the family. What does Gutruna need? She needs a husband who will help uh, continue the power of the family. There is implicit criticism by, on the part of Wagner through the portrayal of these people of conventional marriage. You remember that marriage throughout the history, uh, gradually the, the notion of love, pushing out the notion of keeping family property, political marriages between royal families, advantageous marriages, this, which was the history of Europe, is gradually changing, but Wagner is an opponent of this, and so he will make an implicit criticism of the system because he will always come out on the side that love, as an extension of nature, should be unfettered, unbound by morality, which for him is created by people, not by nature. That is why he doesn't have a problem with Sieglinde and Siegmund at the fact that they are twins. That is why he has no problem with the fact that Siegfried, who has met Brunhilde on the rock is that this is his aunt. There they are, both in need, and they have a illegitimate half-brother. Now, they have the same mother. Her name was Grimhilde. Grim sounds like it's grim. We don't know much about her except that she was married to a Gibishung and she had children with him. But for some reason, she allowed herself to be taken by guess who? Albrecht. Albrecht renounced love because he couldn't get it. Yet, he's managed to talk her into, I don't know if it's a financial arrangement, but he bought her love. Then she conceives a son. Albrecht wants a son, just like Wotan wanted a son, because he wants that son to do what he can't do, which is to get the ring back. Albrecht is still there 40 years later, obsessed with the ring. He wants the ring. And so, conceived in lust and envy is this illegitimate brother, Hagen. So, Hagen is the half-brother of Gunther. He is clever, dark, brooding, mean. He is the Iago of this story. He is going to stage-manage now the entire rest of the opera. Let's listen to a little bit the Gibishung music when it starts. This almost sounds like Bach. So 
and this is another proud family. It's not like Valhalla, but you hear the brass in a solemn way, counterpoint in a very uh, Baroque classical manner. And that's good. And of course, the bass, the dark, wicked, evil bass, that's Haga. reminders of some just a reminder again the curse of the ring you remember nothing else remember that and this that's Votan's spear now we don't see Votan anymore he's finished that's Loga remember Loga the fire he's not going to appear either the sword coming up there it is just remember that And now Gutruna, she has her own very feminine theme. There she is, round again. See, it goes in circles or curves. And Siegfried will arrive on the scene. There's Siegfried, you'll remember that. So what's going to happen now? This is intrigue. Follow carefully. Hagen will manipulate everybody to tell Siegfried, who has no idea of anything, Siegfried, there's a beautiful lady on the rock. Her name is Brynhilde. And Gunther wants to marry her. Meanwhile, Gutruna has taken a great shine to Siegfried. So Hagen's purpose now is to get Brynhilde off that rock to marry Gunther. And then Siegfried will be there to marry Gutruna. But he's got a problem. Siegfried's married to Brunhilde. So he gives him a magic potion. Can't be a fairy tale without a magic potion. It makes Siegfried forget everything. Just like Tristan and Isolde made them fall in love with the first person they see. This works the same way. First of all, you forget your wife. And second of all, you open your eyes and whoever the woman is there, you fall in love. And that's exactly what happens. So Siegfried drinks, he sees Gutruna, he likes Gutruna, and then Hagen suggests, go up to the mountain, go find that woman, bring her back. Excellent idea, but how will he do that if Siegfried walks up to the mountain, takes Brynhilde down? Brynhilde will, of course, object. So they have to change his appearance. And what do they bring out? They have it. The Tarnhelm. The Tarnhelm. You remember the Tarnhelm? They put it on your head, and it will change you into anything you want. Well, this time they want to change him into Gunther. So he's going to look just like Gunther. Now imagine there are two guys looking like Gunther on the stage. You'll know the difference because one is still a baritone, Gunther, and one is still a tenor, and that's Siegfried. But Brunhilde will not recognize him because he will go up to the rock and he will take her by force. Bad idea. And he will bring her down to society the next day in order to marry Gunther. That's the music of the fire, the magic fire. Siegfried's walk through that fire in the form of Gunther. You hear Siegfried's horn call. You hear Brunhilde delighted. Honey, you're home. I can't, I'm so happy. Tell me what you've done. There's all the music of the magic fire. Siegfried's horn call. Happy homecoming.
not Siegfried. At least in appearance. Brunhilde is very upset because another man has come through the fire and, of course, she feels very vulnerable and uh, ready to be attacked. Well, they have a conversation and he says, I'm bringing you down to earth. She says, no, you're not. I'm Brunhilde, my Siegfried. Siegfried, who looks like Gunther, of course, has forgotten everything. And so he's going to wrest the ring from her and bring her back down to earth. This is the forgetfulness motive. It's called Vergessenheit in German. Very useful tonic. It is a relative of the Tarnhelm motive, which you've heard many times. The Tarnhelm, which changes everybody's appearance. And so Siegfried's got the ring. He's taken it from her. He's going to spend the night because it's been too tiring a trip to walk through the fire and climb the mountain and go back from the Rhine. So he doesn't want to walk back to Earth tonight. So they lay down to sleep. He puts his sword in between them, of course. And there they are. Brunhilde very upset. Siegfried quite excited because he has managed to do what he was supposed to do. Wedding. There's a wedding in the future. There's the sword thing. That's the tip of the sword. Forgetfulness, Vergessenheit. Brunhilde's theme. That is the end of Act 1. That's the long act. The others are just normal length. Now, when we come into Act 2, the entire atmosphere is different. Dark and deep. All right? Who is it? Hagen. Hagen's asleep. Hagen is thinking his, his very dark thoughts. And that's the same chord that opened the first uh, the beginning of the opera as well. Minor chord. We know that this, we are in the bosom of evil here when we well. Now, here he is sleeping, and who appears in his sleep but his father, Alberich. Remember, Alberich is his father. Now, we don't quite know if Alberich is alive and he's actually coming to Hagen to talk to him while Hagen is asleep or if this is a dream. Either way, the message is clear. Alberich wants him to get that ring for him, and Hagen is giving him sort of monosyllabic answers as my children often do when I try to wake them up in the morning. You hear it's all dark. This is Alberic. The ring motive. This entire scene is played with muted strings. It has a dark, misty sound to it. All right? They're going to talk about it. Now, Hagen's not going to react very much to his father. He's sick of his father. He doesn't love his father. And Alberich can't be said to love his son. He just goads him on to find that ring. Alberich will walk off, and we will not see him again. Hagen wakes up, and he calls the entire populace together. At this point, something will be introduced to the ring that has been absent for the entire ring, the chorus. Wagner stopped writing for chorus for the ring because he did not like the idea any longer of everybody singing at the same time because he wanted the text to be clear all the time. And you will have noticed that almost all the characters sing even when there are two people having a conversation. It is not like so many dinner tables that I've seen. Nobody ever talks while the other is talking. Nobody ever sings while the other is singing. So you get a real conversation. Now, occasionally he breaks his own rules when there is a single entity, as he did with the Rhine Maidens in Rhinegold. But first, Hagen's got to call all of them. 
This is Hagen's call to all of them. He has steer horns. Here they are. Strange sounding instrument, like an alp horn. And here's his call. That's his motive. Hoy ho, hoy ho, hoy ho. He's got one song. That's it. He repeats it over and over again. This is the expression of the type of obsessive character that his parents, that his father was. And he's like that. And this is the motive you remember from way back. It's the woe motive. That is because he is a dark, woeful character. He never smiles. In fact, he jumps for joy once in this act, and the entire chorus comments, what a day Hagen is smiling. So here he is. From this moment on, you're going to get an uninterrupted, sizzling second act. It does not let up once. The chorus is there. What is basically supposed to happen? The weddings are supposed to take place. Brunhilde is brought down from the rock, supported by whom she believes to be Gunther, who again of now is Siegfried. He's turned himself into Siegfried again. And he presents Brunhilde to the populace as Gunther's future wife. Well, she has a fit as well she might. So we're going to have a situation where Brunhilde feels betrayed by Siegfried, and he, she plays right into Hagen's hands. That's exactly what he wants. So Hagen, Gunther, and Brunhilde are all going to express vengeance. And here they three are going to sing together because they're all singing about revenge. In many respects, this scene is anachronistic because Wagner goes back to te techniques he used in Lohengrin some 25 years earlier. Probably because he conceived the drama around the same time, his music goes back slightly. These are the wedding horns. This is the motive of the wedding horn. Here they are. It's the same structure as the second act of Lohengrin where a wedding is interrupted by evil. Gutruna's motive. Hagen. Hagen. Obsessive, obsessive, obsessive. And now it's going to build up in a technique similar to the Meistersinger to an enormous C major bright. There they are, all the wedding horns. Joyous, yes? No. Hagen. Hagen's in control. Act two finishes. There he is, happy as can be. Siegfried, they're out on a hunting, on a hunting mission. Hagen is out there, it's the wedding, they gotta go get a nice boar or something to eat. So Hagen's out there with the men. Siegfried, they have gotten separated. You still hear the wedding horns in the background. You hear Hagen, bomb, bomb, that's Hagen. And where are we? The Rhine River. It's back again. Just like the beginning of Rheingold. And when the Rhine River is there, who else is there? The Rhine Maidens. Exactly. There they are. They're still swimming around naked. 
They have been unhappy for 40 years because the Rhine is the the Rhine gold has been taken, but it doesn't stop them from swimming, and somehow miraculously, they don't age. Now they're going to meet Siegfried, and they're going to flirt with him, and you know he starts to flirt with them. They say, "Hey, you know we'd love that ring on your finger," and he said, "Oh no, no, you can't have the ring." I'm paraphrasing, of course. They plunge back into the water. He says, "Ah, maybe I should give them the ring. They're so pretty anyway." And then they come out and they make a big mistake. They say, they come out and they warn him. They say, Siegfried, if you don't give us that ring, something terrible will happen to you. Well, you don't say that to a great hero like Siegfried. Now, that's a threat? No, I'm not giving you the ring. And so, he keeps it. Now, everybody comes back in for the hunting party, and Hagen does it again. He convinces Siegfried. He says, Siegfried, tell us the story of your youth. So, those of you that missed Siegfried the other night, you're going to get the story, like the forest bird who guided him. There's the forest bird. You remember that? And here, of course, scenes, scenes from the woods. Now, it all goes well. He tells the story, and he gets up to the part where he starts to tell about how he went up on the mountain. At this point, the clever Hagen says to him, you must be awfully thirsty. Take this drink. So he drinks this. Of course, this is the magic potion which undoes forgetfulness, forgessenheit. So just then he says, and I came through the fire, and I met, there was this woman, Brynhilda. What? The entire community is now aghast because he, in fact, has already mated with Brynhilda. So, Gunther, of course, is furious. Hagen takes advantage and, in fact, kills him with the sword. Now, how does he do that? How do you kill a hero who is invincible? Brynhilde told him where is his weakness, where is his Achilles' heel. Achilles' heel was his heel, obviously, because he was dunked into the water and somebody had to hold him by his heel. Well, Brynhilde said his weak point is his back because he is so brave he will never turn his back on an enemy. So Hagen knows, he says, look up, there are the ravens, takes the sword, and he kills Siegfried. And we get one of the most magnificent funeral marches in the history of music, Siegfried's funeral music. Dark C minor. It is to the opera world what the Eroica Symphony, the funeral march from the Eroica Symphony is to the symphonic world. And that is very clearly what Wagner wanted to do. He wanted to create a funeral march to outstrip and outdo Beethoven. Now, in fact, it's out of proportion to Siegfried's accomplishments. What has Siegfried accomplished? Pretty much nothing. So the tragedy here is not so much about Siegfried the individual, but the end of what should have been the new race of human beings. Eventually, he will be carried off, Brunhilde will come back, Brunhilde will now realize that she has been betrayed and that Siegfried was in fact faithful and it wasn't his fault, and she is now determined she will immolate the body of Siegfried, and while she's at it, she will immolate the world. She will take the ring of Siegfried's hand, which Hagen tried to do and could not do, and she will throw it back to the Rhine maidens. By so doing, she will redeem the world because she is returning the ring to its proper place, which means she's reestablishing the the harmony that was broken in the so-called Garden of Eden by Alberic. Alberic stole the ring, he started the whole process, now the ring will go back into 
the river, and, it, and everything will be redeemed. It's now like Noah's flood. There will be fire and water, and it will clean everything up. Here's the water, and here's Hagen. Zurück vom Ring, the last words of the ring. Get back from the ring. He tries to take it. The curse motive for the last time. The Rhine Maidens drape themselves around his neck and around his middle, and they drag him down. Hagen is drowned. Now everybody's gonna die. Everybody, except the Rhine Maidens, because they are part of nature. There they are. You hear their music. In the most magnificent orchestral finale, Wagner has unleashed the orchestra in Goethe Dämmerung in a new way where it gets to have its own voice. It performs constantly without singers. The fire is engulfing Valhalla, the entire world. The world is being purified because Brynhild has put the ring back where it belongs and because she has shown infinite love, she will become a heroine. Now, she immolates herself. She sacrifices herself, the daughter of a god who has become human to redeem the human race. And that's the Valhalla motive being heard for the last time. As Valhalla goes up in flames. Now there's one mysterious element left. There is an, one character who does not die. We don't know that he lives, but he's, he is not accounted for. And that, that is Alberic. Nobody knows what happens to Alberic. So as the world comes to an end, there's a question. If Alberic's dead, then it's a new era. The gods are dead. It's the human beings now for the future who have the earth. Here is the redemption through love. Brynhilde, the redeemer. The love theme that Leonard Bernstein adopted and cited in West Side Story. This is how it will end. Does Alberic live? Does he go back and steal the ring, the gold again? And does it start all over again? Or is it really a new era? In other words, is history cyclical? It repeats itself? Or is it linear? Is it going somewhere? I don't have the answer. Wagner doesn't give us the answer. And in order to really find out, you have to go and hear the ring again. So come back in five years when we come back with the ring. Thank you so much. podcast was co-produced by Rebecca Stewart. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera.